while we're all turning to 1 Corinthians 15. I know this is sort of rhetorical, but I can, I can read your faces. Um, how are we doing this morning? Sad. Amen. Sad and amen. Those are probably the two best words we could use. Um, yeah, it's been a hard week for us as a church family. and I was thinking with Christine last night, you know, I've been at Edgewater coming up on 11 years now. There's been, there have been hard weeks. I don't know that there's been a harder week than this one. Just emotionally really draining. Obviously, we're, we're just grieving uh, the death of a brother in Christ and, and the impacts of that on his family and on us as a family and on our community. Um, few people had the, you know, the broad impact that Mark Pike had, both in its scope around our community and also in its length of time. So it's, it's been just a really difficult week, and I, I know you're feeling that too. I know that there are plenty of you who aren't here this morning who are feeling that too, and maybe that's partly why you're not here this morning, and we understand that. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to continue our First Corinthians series, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit. We were supposed to be at the beginning of chapter 11 today. We left off at chapter 10 last time we were in the book. But I'm going to jump ahead just for today into chapter 15. And I'm doing that because I know most of us are still very much in the middle of grieving this morning. And chapter 15 deals with death. It deals with death, and more specifically, it deals, for, it deals with the hope of resurrection after death for those who are in Christ, for those who die in Christ, the hope of resurrection after death. This chapter is actually the longest and the most in-depth treatment of the resurrection of believers in the entire Bible. It is full, actually. It's kind of a long chapter. It's full of doctrine about the bodily resurrection of Christ and of his people. And if we were to, to really walk through that fullness of doctrine, it would probably take several Sunday mornings to get through it all. But I'm not going to do a deep dive into doctrine this morning. Because I, I know our hearts are tender today. What I want to do is just point us to a couple of truths that I'm hoping will do a deep dive into us this morning. And bring comfort and hope to our wounded hearts through Christ, through our Savior. So Father, I pray that you would just speak through your word to us. And just give us this incredible hope that we have in Jesus. Remind us of the things that we, we may know, but we may not, just, we may not think about them enough. Or, or maybe we know them and we have wavered in our, our belief and trust in these truths this morning. Or maybe we don't know these things and we just need to know by your Spirit's illumination. So Lord, would you just speak to us? 
encourage us and comfort us and ultimately draw us to you through your Son in whom there is resurrection life. And we pray that in his name. Amen. What happens after we die? What happens? Perhaps you've been thinking about that this week. I'm sure most of us have. It's one of the great existential questions. And yet, apart from weeks like this, I fear that we often sort of ignore it. Uh, even, though, even though it's this great question that, that everybody at some point will ask and should ask, we often will, will either ignore it, we'll sort of avoid the subject because death makes us uncomfortable. And again, weeks like this one sort of abruptly interrupt our avoidance strategies, doesn't it? Or maybe we, we, just, uh, we just misunderstand the answer to the question of what happens to us after we die. We might believe in, in life after death, but maybe we believe that truth inadequately. So in other words, you, you, might, you might think something like this, our souls have a, a life after death. Our souls go to an ethereal heaven in the clouds, and, and we, we're, we're there as sort of disembodied spirits for eternity, but, but our bodies get buried. Our bodies rot away in the grave. I think a lot of people who believe in the afterlife or in an afterlife, that's, that's their, their, uh, their conception of it. It's disembodied. It's ethereal. It's cloudy, right? Uh, but it's not thought of as tangible, material life like we have right now, where I can do this, right? I, if, I, if, I, if I think this way, I think in heaven I could do this, and I'm always going through myself, right? Because I don't have a body. That's the way the, the Corinthians mostly thought about death. And again, I think a lot of people do. And so what Paul does in this chapter is he wants them, and he wants us to know that our salvation in Christ is greater than that. That our salvation in Christ is more holistic than that. He wants us to have this proper understanding of the, the comprehensive power of the resurrection. So this morning, I'm going to just bring out three things that I, I see in the text. It's not a, it's not a, a comprehensive walkthrough of the text by any means, but just three things. The first one is the hope-filled reality the hope-filled reality of Christ's resurrection. And secondly, the hope-filled reality of believers, like you and me, our resurrection. And then lastly, just the way to resurrection life. So let's look at this first idea, the hope-filled reality of Christ's resurrection. If you're in chapter 15, just look over to verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Though through Adam we all die, it's through Christ 
that there is resurrection for the dead. This opening assertion in verse 20 is the foundational truth upon which our entire faith rests. It's, it's such an important statement. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, is a fact. Is a fact. He stresses the importance of this fact upon the validity of our faith in verse 14. Look up there. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. But of course, Paul wants us to know that our faith is not in vain. He presents the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And he presents the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as historical facts that can be verified. Look over at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died since. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He gives three ways here for us to verify the fact of Christ's resurrection. The first one is by the testimony of the Scriptures. You see that in verse 3. The second is through the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. You see that in verses 5 and 6. And then lastly, by the testimony of a changed life, his very own life, in verses 7 to 11. You know, in verse 3, when Paul says, in accordance with the Scriptures, he doesn't specify which biblical texts. He doesn't go into a, a, a long litany of them or, or do an exposition here. That's because he's, he's just reminded them that he's already delivered that testimony to them in verse 3, right? I've already delivered this to you. And they'd already believed it, he says in verse 11. So he didn't need to recount that testimony in full here, but, but only to imply that the entire testimony of the Bible points to the life and work of Jesus Christ. He says, when we look at Jesus and we see his, his life, his death, his resurrection, this is all in accordance with the scriptures because that's what the Bible does. It points to him. It would be similarly impossible for us to do a comprehensive study 
of Scripture's testimony about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in a short message like today's. But I hope you can note this. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon, when we come to study the Bible, no matter where we read in here, no matter what gets preached, it always leads us to Jesus. Have you noticed that? We always get to Jesus. And I want you to know that's not an accident. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. Because that's what all of Scripture does. It points to Him. Do you know that, that biblical scholars have compiled a list of over 300 biblical prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus? 300. That's what this collection of scriptures does. So Paul reminds them of that. What he does in, in more detail, though, is he highlights the testimony of witnesses that the Corinthian believers could go talk to, that they could hear from firsthand. He lists first Peter, which is Cephas. And then he's, he lists the 12 and other, over 500 other people, 500, including James, who he says were mostly still alive at the time that Paul was writing this and therefore could be asked. If, if any of you were skeptical, you could talk to hundreds of people who could tell you what they saw, what they heard firsthand. You know, when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote this within about 18 to 20 years after the resurrection event. That's about the same distance in time that we are today from the events of 9-11. And just as today we're surrounded by eyewitnesses of the collapse of the Twin Towers who could tell their stories and, and share with us what they saw with their own eyes. There were hundreds of people, Paul says, who could share with the Corinthian believers that they saw Jesus, that they spoke with him, that they ate with him, that they verified his identity after he had certainly died and certainly been buried and certainly rose from the grave on the third day. The evidence is overwhelming, in other words. And in fact, scholars of antiquity will concede that. One of the most respected and renowned atheist philosophers of the past 50 years, a man named Anthony Flew, wrote a book titled, There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. He's talking about himself, and he, he said that the historical evidence of the resurrection is plentiful, and he says the evidence is better than for claimed miracles of any other religion. It's outstandingly different, both in quality and in quantity, 
from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. So Paul's saying, look, we have this testimony, this verifiable testimony in scriptures that have been fulfilled in people that saw and you could talk to them. But for Paul, there's an even more personal and powerful testimony that he wants to point us to. Look at verse 8. Again, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul here says, look, I want to point you to the reality of a changed life as the validity of Christ's resurrection. Look at me, he says. Look at me. How else could a man like Paul, who was a murderous persecutor of Christians, be so transformed by God that he became an apostle, that he became the world's most effective preacher of the gospel. How could that happen? It's because he saw the resurrected Christ face to face on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. And the reality of that experience of seeing the resurrected Jesus face to face transformed him from a murderer to an apostle. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I've been changed. So this evidence that he's pointing them to, this resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he's he's saying this is not a mythical story. It's not a legend. It's a historical fact. It's a fact. And it's the validating foundation of our faith. And it's the basis for our hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave, it means that death has been conquered. The penalty for sin has been paid and it's been overcome because Jesus died for us and he beat death. Now, Paul wants us to get this, but, but, but more. That's not the ultimate point of this chapter. He says there's even more to resurrection than that. This is the main point of chapter 15. Jesus' resurrection, because it's fact, also ensures the resurrection of everybody who places their faith in Him as Lord. We will all beat death. Because Jesus beat death. Verse 20 and 21 again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. This is the second thing. The first was the hope-filled reality of Christ's resurrection. Here's now the hope-filled reality of the believer's resurrection. By saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits here in verse 20 of those who have died in him, he's telling us that the resurrection event is not closed and past tense. Not entirely. In fact, it's an ongoing event. It's an ongoing event because Jesus rose from the dead, so will we who are followers of Christ. Though we die and our our bodies are buried in the ground, one day our bodies too will be physically reunited with our souls. Look at verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You know, yesterday, many of us had the opportunity to walk past Mark Pike's open casket. It was, it was right here. And if you're like me, you, you looked at Mark's body there and you, you probably thought, he's, he's not really there. That's just his, that's his former shell. Mark's soul is in heaven in the, in the presence of his Savior, but, but not in this body. This, this body is no longer occupied by Mark, it will be returned to the dust. It's going to decay and it's going to disappear. And if you, if you had an opportunity to look at Mark's body, and I, I say this with respect and sensitively, you could already begin to see the effects of decay and disappearance. It didn't totally look like Mark. Listen, all of that is true. It's not, his, it's not there. It's his former shell. His body is going to decay and disappear. All of that is true. But what Paul wants us to know is it's not ultimately true. You know, we often speak of a gravesite as a person's final resting place, right? This is their final resting place. But for Christians, that's not accurate. A gravesite for a Christian is your temporary resting place. It's a holding place until the day in which that grave will give up our bodies in resurrection power. And that truth is also a source of our hope. And like I said earlier, a lot of Christians don't think enough about it as such. That's part of our hope. Listen to what Paul has to say about the future of our own bodies. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die. Some will, will be alive until the day that the Lord recomes. We won't all die. Most of us will. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hope. Notice that Paul articulates a problem in verse 50. He says, flesh and blood, right, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood. In other words, these current, flawed, aging, deteriorating, damaged bodies that we now occupy, our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, why? Because they're perishable. They aren't suited for eternity, which is the imperishable. Because these bodies have a shelf life. They will spoil. And the reason for our body's perishable nature is given in verse 56. The sting of death. Death is our spoil date. The sting of death is sin. Sin is the sting. You ever been stung by a bee or a scorpion? Anybody? Bee, probably more likely than scorpion, I hope. <laughs> Many of us. So you know what happens. You are pierced and you're poisoned, right? That's what a sting is. You are pierced and you are poisoned. And, 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 and that's what Paul here, as he's quoting Isaiah and Hosea, is affirming. That's what sin does. It pierces us with a deadly poison. Far more deadly than a bee sting. Sin's fatality rate is 100%. And our bodies are so contaminated by this poison that they're unfit for heaven. That's why we needed a Savior 
who would die for us. God said to, to Adam in the garden back in Genesis, he says, if you taste the poison of sin, you shall surely die. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. Sin has a price. And the price must be paid. And so enter the gospel. Enter the gospel. Again, look back at, at, at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. Back in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He died for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was stung. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement, the judgment that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Jesus was pierced and poisoned for us that we might be healed, that he might pay the wages of our sin. Verse 4, he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was pierced, he died, he buried, and he was raised. By his resurrection, this pierced and poisoned one who tasted death for us conquered death. And when we understand this, Jesus died for us and he rose again. He conquered death. We, 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 we understand that. We often say with Paul and again with the prophets Isaiah and Hosea, whom he quotes in verse 56, we often say similarly, and I just got to flip back, sorry, two-page Bible. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And we say, hallelujah. Praise God. But I want you to notice this. It's not Jesus' resurrection that Paul is immediately referring to when he quotes these Old Testament prophets. It's ours. Verse 53 again. For this, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, when we get these resurrected bodies, in other words, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He wants us to understand that these bodies of ours will be resurrected. And when they are, they'll be changed. The perishable will become imperishable. 
The mortal will become immortal. Death's victory over body and spirit will not just be defeated for Jesus, but for all of those who die in him. That's the point of chapter 15. And why is this important? Because it speaks to the power of the gospel. Jesus didn't just save part of you. He saves the whole you. He didn't just redeem your soul, Christian. He redeems all of you, body and soul. The salvation that you have by faith in Jesus Christ is total and holistic. There's not a single molecule of yours that has not been liberated from the sting and the bondage of death. Christian, this morning, you need to know that the power of the gospel is veritable, unmitigated, unqualified, unadulterated, unalloyed, unconditional, unequivocable, full, unmitigated, infinite, ultimate, through and through, in depth, unbroken, undivided, uninterrupted. Every part of us is saved in Jesus. That's our hope. That's the power of the gospel. There is totality in it. Verse 51, we shall all be changed. Not some of us. All of us. Total salvation for God's people. There's continuity in it. Verse 53, this perishable body, this this mortal body, this one will put on imperishable. This one will put on immortality. I'm going to get a a new body, but it's it's not going to be completely different than this body. This body will be made new. Continuity. Totality. And complete victory. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. What happens to us when we die? If you are in Christ, every ounce of your being will be ushered into the presence of God in heaven forever. Again, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That is hope, 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 hope. Finally, I said we'd talk about the way to resurrection life. And I want to just go back to verses 1 to 4 very quickly and make this point because this is so important. 
Verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at a time, and so on, and so on. Look at these verses again, and note this. The way to resurrection life is not just a mentally comprehended historical record. He, he, he presents these things as facts to us. He gives us a chronology here. It's, it's, a, it's a history of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it's not given to us just that we would mentally comprehend it as historical fact. But as he says in verse 2, that something that you would hold fast to and believe. It's a saving truth that must become efficacious to you, not just historical. Efficacious to you by faith. To believe that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again, not just 2,000 years ago as an event, but, but for me. That was my death. That was my burial. And it's my resurrection because Jesus conquered death for me. It was my sin. And if I believe that he did that for me, and I trust in him then as the only deliverer for me in hope, of resurrection, of new life, forgiveness of my sin, that becomes efficacious. It has effect for me. And that's the way to resurrection life. So as Andy mentioned earlier this morning, we don't, you know, we, I know who's here. I don't know who's watching out there. And I don't know the condition of the hearts of fully any of us. But I know this has been a hard week for most. And maybe we're asking, what, what good could come of a week like this? I don't pretend to know all the answers to that, but there's one thing, there's one thing I want to offer to us, perhaps the good of reckoning with the reality of death. of reckoning with the reality of sin that leads to death so that we can be pointed towards repentance and faith and hope in the reality of resurrection. That we can be pointed to Jesus. Don't believe in vain brothers and sisters. Believe in hope. Believe in 